My guest today prefers to do the interviewing rather than being interviewed. In an article, she stated, My best work is behind the scenes. But her work deserves her attention, and her approach to life could very well help you in your approach to life. Start with the hook. Why would anyone care about this story? There are always people who will care. Know who your audience is and target them with your language. Make it interesting to them. My guest is a media mogul, former news producer and senior writer at CTV News, Canada AM, CTV National News, Breakfast Television, CP24, and so much more. She's also the 2020 recipient of the 100 Accomplished Black Canadian Women Award, highlighting her various roles in the African-Caribbean community. She's taught media literacy. She fundraises for important causes. She is a PR public relations phenom. And what stands her out is her burning desire to further the cause of others and further the cause of media. Not too long. And sell, 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 sell. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Her name is Fenella Bruce, and in this chat, we will learn what she does and how it can positively apply to you. Fenella Bruce, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you, Tony. Great to be here. So there's a word that sticks out when I was doing my research on you. You might find it surprising, but the word is only. And let me explain. When your parents immigrated to Canada, there were only a few black families. So let's start with that. What did your family do to find your sense of community when you were obviously the visible minority? Well, when we first came, my parents, my brother and I came from London, England. My aunt was already living here uh, down in East York in an apartment on Gamble Avenue. I think it was two of my aunts that were living there. And so what happened, which is what happens with a lot of immigrant families, is that everybody stays in one place until they can you know, afford to move out. So I think there was maybe, I mean, I was very small, but I think there was maybe um, <laughs> probably like eight or nine of us in this, in this two-bedroom apartment. Um, and then we didn't stay long. So we, we had family, you know, together when we first came. And we stayed there for, I was in kindergarten, maybe a year, less than a year. And then my father bought a house in what's now uh, called Leslieville <laughs> in the Queen Jones area at the time. And there was a lot of different um, communities living in there, immigrants living in there in that area at the time. We, uh, we were there for, for about 12 years. And my parents are from Guyana. There were a lot of Guyanese people at that time coming because Guyana was part of the British Commonwealth. So a lot were coming from Guyana or coming through Britain to Canada. So we would connect with those people and kind of form a little community. And, and then, of course, once I was in school, yes, and there's probably like, I would say at a, at a school that maybe had about 300 or so kids, maybe a dozen were black kids. It was a little strange. There was a lot of different things that I experienced, racism, obviously, and feeling sort of uh, isolated. But I had a really good support at home, right? My, my parents gave me really a good sense of who I was um, as, a, as a young black girl. And I didn't feel like I didn't have that community. You know, we did a lot of things on the weekends with family and friends and stuff. So I didn't feel like, okay, there was nobody there for me. I mean, looking back at that school and experiencing all these difficult things, obviously there's a lot of pain and confusion. But now as you think of yourself as this very strong, independent woman, 
Do you think some of what you learned back then actually helped you achieve what you've achieved in your life? Yeah, definitely. You know, I had, like, I had an amazing childhood and um, I loved growing up downtown. Um, we had, a, like I said, we had a lot of friends from a lot of different communities. I, I can start to name like people who, from my past, like my best friend was Pamela Hills and she was white and Jean Dang who lived across the street and my friend Sharna Reed. It was good in that sense that um, I did grow up in this multicultural society and, and experienced diversity at a very young age and it was a good experience. There were things that were challenging, obviously, and there was obviously ignorance, and there was obviously people that made fun of me, made fun of my name. That was one of the <laughs> one of the things that really it actually affected my sleep. People would call me, my name is Vanilla, and then they would say, you know, your name is Vanilla. Why are you vanilla when you're chocolate? And so then I started talking in my sleep. My dad would say, I would spell my name. My name is Fenella, F-E-N-N-E-L-L-A. <laughs> and like, because it was, it was really like affecting me in that sense, right? And then there was one point, my middle name was Karen, that I wanted to change my name you know, to Karen because it was so much simpler and I would just fit in. Um, I'm glad that I didn't because I, I love my name now and I think it's very unique. It's a, it's a great conversation starter. I don't want to be... Karen, and not because Karen is disparaging now, <laughs> but but also it's just like Penala is me, like and there, there are no other Penalas, and that and so I, I kind of grew into that uniqueness and embraced it. So I want to go to the next only concept, and that is you've only ever wanted to be in journalism. Where did that come from? Because everything when you talk about journalism and words and content, I mean, you just see your whole energy lift. So where did that love come from? I think I, I, yes, I wanted to be in journalism, but I don't know that I knew what that was at the time. When I was growing up, I was very, was really into reading. Like I was an avid reader. I spent my summers in, in the library reading and I was a very good writer. I was a very good creative writer. I knew I wanted to do something in that space, but I didn't quite know what it was. I thought uh, there was one point when I thought I wanted to be a teacher and that's because I really loved kids and I loved learning and, and teaching and thought that would be something I wanted to do. And then when I was in high school, I was very good um, in law and I actually got a, a bursary for, for law and I thought, oh, maybe I would do that. And then I, I was fascinated with television. I didn't know how to get into that box, right? How did those people get in there and how did that whole thing work? And so I got accepted to Carleton because I, I got accepted to the journalism program at Carleton. I got um, a scholarship to York University. I got accepted to U of T. And I felt like if I, I wasn't entirely sure what this journalism thing was. So I didn't want to limit myself and go to Carleton and then come out and realize I didn't want to do this. So, and New York was, was too far from where I was living. I didn't want to live on campus. So I ended up going to U of T. And when I was there, and I was doing my English degree, I ended up writing for the underground and, and the varsity. And there was a radio station, and I ended up becoming the program director for, for the radio station. I knew there was media was in my blood. And the only missing piece was television, but they didn't have the television component or anything for me to do. And I looked into different graduate programs. I ended up, so I ended up applying to Ryerson. Well, just before you get into that, you got into a program, 700 applicants applied, only 60 people gone in. And once again, the word only shows up because you're the only black student in the class. So tell me about the program and what did you learn and what did it feel like being a minority of one? <laughs> well, by that time, I was quite used to it, Tony. <laughs> so 
you know, I when I got to um, UT, there was a black community. I was part of the African Caribbean Student Association, and I was active in, in a lot of events that did that. So I felt a, a sense of community there. And then I got into Ryerson, and it was it was back to grade school again, where I was the only person, right? But I felt like by that time, it didn't, and it doesn't bother me anymore because. I can walk into a room and, and there's no other black people in there and it's okay because I'm very comfortable with who I am and I'm, I'm very secure of who I am. So I, I don't even think about it, right? Other people might think about it or may, you know, wonder why I'm in that space. And I've had those sort of questions, but I don't go in there thinking about that. And so when I got into Ryerson, I didn't think that I did well. I, you know, there's a whole component. There was a, a test that you had to do, which I, I did well on. And there was an essay you had to write, no problem. And then there was an interview. I didn't feel like I did well in the interview. And I left there thinking, okay, what are my other options? I'm going to go to college. I'm going to do something else. Thinking, And when I found out I got in, I was shocked. The first day of the program, I'm sitting there. And the same person that interviews me walks into the room. And it turns out he was the dean <laughs> of the school. So maybe I got a little harder interview than others and why I felt that way. I felt like, okay, I definitely should be here because if the person in charge was the person who ended up interviewing me and accepting me here, then I should be there. It was hard at first because a lot of the students in my class were very connected with people in the industry. They had parents or they had their parents' friends that that worked in media, worked at CBC. There was one one woman whose, you know, aunts were, you know, CBC reporters and that was kind of you know, pointed out and people weren't on. I was sitting here with this kid from, at the time I was living in Malvern, so this kid from Malvern who I didn't know anybody, I had no connections and I was still trying to figure out this journalism thing. You know, I was a little lonely at that time and I did feel like, okay, am I gonna get through this two-year program? And one of the things that, that got me through that was that I found television there. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. The truth is, traditional media is alive and thriving. According to the CRTC, Canada's governing telecommunications body, in 2019 to 2020, on average, in any given week, 97% of Canadians watch traditional television and 84% listen to traditional radio. Most homes still have a TV set, and despite decades of predictions that radio is dead, all cars still have a radio player in them, and they have a captive audience of commuters stuck in traffic. Joining me today is Fenella Bruce. In 2022, recognized as the Businesswoman of the Year, and in 2020, another award, this time one of the 100 accomplished Black Canadian women. Why television? Like, what made you so you go from should I belong to this is a medium that I, I know I can absolutely rock in? I like the immediacy of television. I liked the um, ability to tell stories visually. There was an adrenaline or something that came with television, the excitement of television and, and, and stories coming in and figuring it out and, and how to put it together and summarize it very short. I learned how to, to write very succinctly, which is not an easy thing to do to tell a story in 30 seconds or one minute. And it was a challenge. And I'm a person who likes challenges. So it was a challenge to be in that environment and challenge myself and to learn. I learned how to edit. I learned how to do camera. I learned how to do lighting. And not that I was going to be a camp person or anything, but as a producer, you have to know all of those things 
when you're directing somebody or you're asking them why the shot is blue because you know they didn't white balance right so you have to know these things <laughs> and so it was you know it was like i thought ryerson was one of the best experience educational experiences i ever had because i learned so many different things that maybe i didn't use at the moment but i certainly used later on in life so breakfast television's your first real full-time job and that must have been in its early days. How did you land the job? And what did you learn going from being a student, which is where you start getting confidence and you start really feeling you fit in, to now going into the world where you're not sure how to fit in? I'm always being a hustler. So I had to figure out really quick how I was going to get connections and networks and all that kind of stuff that my other classmates had. And so anytime anybody came to my class and spoke, I would follow up with them. Even if it was just to say, hey, I really enjoyed your talk, you know, whatever. Or could I come in and just, you know, shadow you or something like that? Because that was that was the only way I was going to break in. And, you know, my one of my instructors had said, you know, don't even think about working in Toronto when you graduate. You need to go to a smaller town and then come back and... I certainly wasn't interested in going to a smaller town <laughs> being the only, only again, right? So yeah, I got to figure out how many, you know, work in Toronto. So there was a reporter um, that many people will probably remember at City TV, Jojo Chinto, and he was the crime reporter. And he came and he spoke to our class and he um, talked about a series that he was doing. And he said, you know, you guys watch the series and let me know what you think about it. I watched the series and this is how long ago it was. I was at the school and I went to the payphone <laughs> at the school. <laughs> and I called him. I was so nervous that I called him and I, and I said, you know, I watched the series and I gave him my thoughts on the series. And then he said, you know, why don't you come down and, you know, shadow me and, and you can see what it's like to be a reporter and, you know, meet some, meet some of the other people at City. So I got to, like, you know, go to a crime scene and see what, how the whole process was. And subsequently... Jojo was like, anytime you want to come down, let me know, whatever. But what I would suggest that you do, and I and I take this and I give this advice to, to, to other students that I mentor, he said, you know, come. And even if you're not doing anything, you want to be in the environment, you want to be in the space, you want to be there so when the opportunity comes and they're looking around, they see you or they recognize you or they know your name. So I would, whenever I had an opportunity, I would go down to City TV and, you know, figure out ways to be there or to, to talk to another reporter or, or ask if I could go out with another reporter or whatnot. And then I started volunteering on the weekends and I would come in because it was quieter on the weekends and practice writing. I wouldn't, nothing I did want to air, but I would write the stories like the other writers. And then I would print off their stories and compare, you know, I'd go home and compare what I've written and what they've written. Subsequently, a... A job came up, a part-time, so, so someone was off, off on a, a sick leave. And so they needed a part-time, not a full-time, a part-time writer on breakfast television. So that, when I say part-time, is you're starting at 4 a.m. and you're finished at 9 a.m. Right? So, Great shift. <laughs> yes, right? So, but this is my foot in the door. So they offered me the job. I, at the time, I was working at a community paper, Pride newspaper. I was uh, editing. I said, okay, yeah, sure, I'll do it because I, I wanted, I mean, it was city TV. It was breakfast television, the number one show was Kevin Frankish. Like, this was huge, right? So I said, okay. By January, they offered me a full-time job. I moved me to the 6 o'clock and 11 o'clock news um, because I was a strong writer. It was very intimidating. 
it was intimidating writing for Kevin Frankish for other middle-aged white men that I was working with. They were, for the most part, very nice. But as well, like morning television can be very stressful. So there was things that my innocent ears weren't used to hearing. <laughs> There's a lot of, you know, a lot of cursing and stuff that would happen. And, you know, so I had to get used to that. You know, you grow in, in journalism, many will tell you, you grow a thick skin. So you, you have to learn not to take things personal. I, I was, you know, definitely intimidated by the whole situation. And even the stories that I was writing, I remember at one time it was, there was one of the many like peace in the Middle East things happening. And I'm like writing this, it's breaking, you know, during our show and I'm like writing this copy and I'm just like, okay, this is so weird. I'm this like 23 year old kid from Scarborough writing about this for, you know, and everybody's watching. Right. So it was very, um, it was an experience. It definitely was. And, and it helped me though to, one of the things my, my uh, foreign boss would say is that being on the writing desk exposes you to the newsroom because you work with the camera people, you work with the editors, you work with assignment, you work with the reporters, you work with the producers. All those people have to work with the writer in some capacity and you learn all of those positions. And then when I moved on to becoming a senior writer and then a producer, I understood everything on, on, on how the newsroom you know, runs. Well, you know, you mentioned the, you know, the F-bombs that are going off and stuff. You know, I love Downton Abbey because you had the dynamics between the people that were upstairs and the people that serviced them. I'm curious in the media world, what the dynamics are like, because we know the people that are in front of the, the camera. We know the people that are, that treat their microphone like a rudder, but so much happens behind the scenes. What is the dynamics like? Is it always collaborative or is there a lot of tension between, you know, the people that really make the news happen and the people that read it? It's both. I think a lot of people don't understand or recognize that what they see on television, uh, video and whatnot they're seeing is the edited, right? We will know that now, I guess, through social media. But there's a lot of stuff that you don't see a lot of stuff that's traumatizing a lot of raw stuff that you that that i have to filter right that i have to watch before you can see it there's a lot of people their coping mechanism for that is inappropriate humor maybe lashing out or stress right there's a whole also competitive nature about you know being the first getting things out sources all those sort of things so you're in a pressure cooker have to sort of understand that and maybe have a little bit of compassion in that sense. One of the things that, that people would say about me as a producer in the control room, like I was one of the most calmest patient producers, right? Because I don't think that you get results by yelling at people or, or swearing at people. I, I've never sworn at anybody. Um, I just don't think that's that's good practice. You know, I'm interested in, as you talk about the sort of the dynamics of what happens in the news. When I interviewed Kevin Newman, he talked about how journalists really suffer from PTSD, that what they see and what they're exposed to, as you say, the raw footage, it really, you pay a price to be in that profession. And, and it's not even just the footage. Like I've, it's like when people talk about the criminal justice system, you're seeing people at their worst. I've had to talk to people in crisis, you know, I've been on crime scenes or I remember one story where an explosion happened um, out west and you don't know if people are alive inside or not and then you're the one who has to go and see if they want to do an interview and be prepared to 
have somebody say very nasty things to you, right? So I'd be sensitive about the situation or get them to open up to you. It's almost like, it's almost kind of like a psychologist sort of thing. It can be very hard if you don't know how to compartmentalize that or if you don't know how to deal with, manage that or leave it behind once you go home. You talk about this pressure cooker and wanting to have the breaking news and wanting to have the news that draws eyeballs. But you just said an interesting point. There's times where you have to go in and convince somebody to come on the news. Your conscience must be at play there because you know what you're doing is something that matters. But at the same time, is there times where you feel I'm pushing somebody to do something they don't want to do? There may have been the odd time that I felt uncomfortable with it. But generally speaking, I would never force somebody. Most, most times, Tony, people are trying to are trying to get me to get them on the news. <laughs> so they want to be on, right? So when there has been a sensitive situation, right, and I know this, I do try to, to handle it in that way, right? And I do try to give the person sort of the best advice on how to, you know, approach the interview and be comfortable with it. And then give them the assurances that if there's something that, you know, people talk and they say things and then they think afterwards, oh my gosh, I wish I hadn't said that, whatever. You know, I, unless it's something that was, and it's never happened, like really critical, then, you know, is it really necessary to put it on there? Because if, if they don't want it on there, no, it can be changed. Coming up next, Finella Bruce turns the channel from the wonderful career she's had in television to starting her own business. And within four years, she wins a major award. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. A big shout out to RBC for sponsoring the RBC Canadian Women Entrepreneur Awards and shining an important spotlight on Canada's most impactful women, the ones who have demonstrated excellence both locally and globally. Canada's economy and our local communities need more women entrepreneurs to drive growth and positive social change. We'll all be better for it. Women entrepreneurs, they matter to Canada and they matter to RBC. Rather than thinking in terms of traditional media or social media, we should instead focus on how to use them both in tandem to get the best results from both of them. When you use it together, it increases your brand credibility, it boosts your discoverability, and it masses a community that is engaged with your brand. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Fenella Bruce, a veteran news producer who's worked in the field of journalism for more than 20 years. I'd say the last decade, but I would say even more so the last couple of years, Mass media has been under attack. Either there's people that think it's being paid for by our government. Other people think it's lost the plot. There's obviously the dynamics happening between high-priced talent and whether newsrooms can continue to afford that high-priced talent. And then you and I were also talking before the interview about the status quo and how maybe the, the mass media in its golden days never really moved on as new media. So what's what's your sense of all of that? Me, I, I know that I watch news through a different lens than the normal person. And there's certain things that I feel have not progressed in, in the news delivery and the choice of, of stories that we're, we're running. For me, like, for example, with local news, right? I think that we're focusing on these nondescript stories where we're talking about a person was struck down by a car at Queen and Jarvis. I don't see the news value in that. If there's something more to it, if you can tell me who the person is, if there's a story about the person, maybe wait until we know what the situation is. But that to me just feels like it's just filling 
time. And we've come into this 24-hour news service where we have to kind of feed the beast, right? And continue to feed it with, with content. But I feel like there needs to be a little bit more thought about what that content is. You know, is it advancing the society? Is it, is it even the news that people want to hear? Because I know a lot of people say to me, I don't even watch news anymore. It's too negative. It's just bad news. It's not interesting. It's the same thing. So there has to be some sort of movement or change in how we're delivering news that hasn't been there. And I feel like particularly when we're talking about this, I think particularly with social media, I think that news has really fallen, like it, it never took it seriously, the impact of social media and what, what it was going to be about, and still trying to play catch up in certain ways. It's losing definitely a younger generation. I don't know what's going to happen in 30 years, but definitely a younger generation that's not interested in consuming news traditionally. So I want to talk now about the move you made in your career, success upon success, you're working with the top news shows, you're growing, people love your calmness, have talked to some people that work with you and they said you were just an absolutely stellar quarterback in terms of making things happen and taking some of the pressure out of the pressure cooker. But you decide to leave all of that and become an entrepreneur and create FKB Media. What was your motivation for leaving security, accolades, validation, people like Drew Craig and Barb Williams, some of the big icons in the industry, wanting you on their team to say, thank you, but no, I'm going to create my own team. So throughout my career, I've always done other things as well as, as worked in the newsroom. So I would tell people in another lifetime, when I was working at City, I was also a music manager. I was managing artists. I would also do uh, public relations for community organizations. Um, I was teaching. And yes, I had two children that I was <laughs> raising at the same time. So I was always being a multitasker and doing stuff. So there's a couple of reasons why I decided to make the move. So first of all, I had gone through uh, two different times where I was laid off. It was a time, and it's still a time, where people are in, in media are getting laid. You walk into work and all of a sudden you don't have a job. The first time I experienced it, it was just devastating for me. I didn't like that feeling of instability. And and what I think really bothered me the most about it was that it really had nothing to do at the end of the day with the job that you were doing. It was really just about a numbers game. The second thing was that my children were getting older. They didn't need me as much. The third thing was that I, I got a job coach. I started exploring what it is I wanted to do because I didn't think that I wanted to, I knew I didn't want to continue to be a producer for the next 10 to 20 years. You know, I was the sole income earner in my home, right? Is this something that I was prepared to do? Because, you know, most people who go into entrepreneurship, you know, fail definitely in the first year. I started doing a little bit of PR while I was at CTV. I was at CTV News Channel at the time. And so I was working a morning shift um, from like six to two. And so I had the afternoons where I could kind of start to do things. I realized there was a niche, there was a hole. There was a hole that I was filling in the, in the market. And it was sort of a hole where definitely within my, within the black community, there was a need for, for someone to help with, with them getting their message out, um, particularly on mainstream media. And there was a hole for small, small businesses that people who couldn't afford large PR companies. And because I was still working, I didn't necessarily, and I didn't have any overhead. I didn't need to charge people a ridiculous amount of money for, for what I was doing. As I was doing this, 
and CTV, I had the best boss, and you know her, Liz Travers, and she encouraged me as well in, in what I was doing. I just got too busy. I couldn't do both. And I felt, okay, this is a time. And she can you stay another month? Can you stay another month? I, <laughs> I would love to, but I had to cut it off because I felt, okay, it's almost like the, 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 the caterpillar and I was becoming the butterfly. It was time for me to fly. 2018, you go on your own. Four years into this venture, you win Businesswoman of the Year. It must be so satisfying to you that you took all that you learned along the way and applied it to this new entrepreneurial venture. It's extremely satisfying. When I won the, that was last month, the Businesswoman of the Year was presented by the Women Empowerment Awards. I went in there. Uh, the other two women were in their businesses for well over 20 years. I went in there thinking, I'll have something nice to eat. I'll network and meet some people. I'll get a really nice gift bag and I'll go home. I'm a person who plans and I'm the planner in my family. I plan and prepare for everything. I'm the go-to person. I did not prepare anything to say because I honestly did not think I was going to win. I was in a room again with people that did not look like me, that I did not know. They were not part of my network. And so they did not know me. I don't even know who nominated me. There was nothing in my mind thinking I was going to win. I just thought, okay, that's kind of nice that they, <laughs> somebody nominated me. I made the finals. But the thing is, Tony, that I, the last four years, and I can't believe it's even been four years, I just have been doing what I do without sitting and measuring what I've been doing. I just do it. People need help with their message. People need um, help with sponsorship. People need help with their live stream production, TV production. If I can help them, I help them. And I just keep going. I guess when you look at my website or you look at, you know, my bio and, and the things that I do, I, I, I guess I have accumulated a lot of things in those last four years that I haven't really taken stock of. So I'm sitting there with my game face on while I started reading the introductions of everybody because I'm just like I'm remembering like when I'm watching the Oscars and they you know everybody's gonna look at you so you have to kind of look like you're you're not disappointed and then you're happy person. So they were reading the, everybody's bio and even when the person was reading my bio she started talking about me working at Canada Am and apparently Valerie Pringle was there. So then she stopped reading my bio and was like, oh, Valerie's here. And everybody turned. And then there was a whole big discussion about Valerie in the middle of my show. So I was like, even more. I was like, okay, we're, <laughs> this is crazy, right? Then they said, businesswoman of the year, Fenella Bruce. And I still, I didn't register to me. Like, I heard my name, but I didn't, I was, I didn't hear my name. And then I turned and I looked at the screen and I saw myself smiling back. And I was like, oh, my God, I actually won't <laughs> And I had to think fast about what it was I was going to say. Well, I've won other things in the past, but I've never had to go up on a stage and speak about, um, you know, receiving an award like that and my journey and what it meant to me. I actually am kind of glad I didn't prepare something. It really allowed me actually just to speak from, from my heart and from within and why I decided to do, and I explained why I decided to do what I did and that... It was important for me. It's, it's always been important for me to help my community. And it's always been important for me to help women. It's not that I don't do things for men or I don't do things um, for white men or anything like that. I do. I, work, I have uh, clients from all walks of life. Um, and I think that's what makes it very interesting in what I do. But I do know that, the, that women and, and the black community need the most help. So the people in the audience, 
pick one of them that didn't know you. They go home that night and they talk about your acceptance speech that just came poured from the heart. What do you think they would remember the most? A couple of people who came up to me uh, actually afterwards, um, one in particular, and said that I, I totally, she felt that I was speaking to her. And, and the point where I talked about not being able to shine in a corporate environment and the restrictions that I felt. Now I'm able, people are able to see me and to recognize what I could do. I mean, I was working in media for 25 years. It's only now I'm, you know, out there and I'm quote unquote branding myself in a way, right? That people know what I'm doing, that people know that. Uh, yeah, I was the first black female producer at City TV. It's not documented anywhere, right? It just, it happened and, and you know, subsequently now there's, there's a lot more, but when I came up, there was, before me, there was uh, Trevor Bindu was the first black and then there was me. My, my favorite phrase, and I said it before Fred, bet on me. I, my, my thing is, is that I'm always about, and everything is betting on myself. I always felt like if I could do this for, you know, Moses' company, or I could do this for Bell Media, and, and they're paying me, and they're believing in me, why wouldn't I do this for myself? <laughs> why wouldn't I not, like, bet on myself? And I'd have that confidence in me, right, to succeed. And with each success that happens, I try to up the game and find a bigger challenge. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Fenella Bruce. Her opinions are not only sought out by clients, but by the New York Film Festival and Canadian Screen Awards, where she has served as a juror. I often talk about attention being the oxygen of all human endeavor. The only way we can teach, coach, lead, mentor is if we have somebody's attention. And today, so many things are starving of attention because there's just so much content out there. What advice can you give my listeners in terms of how do they set themselves up so that people can pay attention to their ideas or their resume or their business? I think I come back to like that, that sort of fable, like slow and steady wins the race. If you do good work and you're consistent, and that's the key, you have to be consistent, building a reputation. Think about what it is, your vision for whatever it is you're doing, the why, right? And then think about how you want people to see it. And then to make sure that you deliver. The biggest thing that I find that people don't do, and, it, and that's why I sometimes say it's very easy to be, as I call a rock star in, in a lot of areas, is that when they say they're, you say you're going to call, call. One of the things that, that people say about me in, in the media, definitely the PR part of what I do, is when you email me, you get a response right back, right away. You have to be thinking about what it is that you're delivering and deliver it on time, deliver it professionally. And if you're consistent with those things, and I, I've had clients that have helped them to sort of repackage themselves and be very professional what you're putting out there, be consistent deliver what you say you're going to be doing, people can't deny you. They can't deny you what you're doing in your work or your business or your message. My final question to this PR phenom, this person that succeeded in so many ways, including raising two wonderful children, is what's next? Well, like I don't have enough to do. I started another company. <laughs> so 
I started a, a production company and that comes from obviously my television background. And I wanted to move sort of the, the TV stuff and the live stream stuff I was doing under that umbrella. But the other thing that I wanted to do was a documentary. I was thinking about it and um, long story short, I came up with who I wanted to do a documentary on for a number of reasons. And so my first doc is about Maestro Fresh Wax. He is like a Canadian hip hop pioneer. He's the person who put before Drake, before Tory Lanez, before all these other people, he put hip hop on the map for Canada. And I realized that there was like, there had never been anything about him. And I'm very passionate about documenting black stories. And they ha it hasn't been done very well in Canada. There has been a gap. We, we definitely know about the Gene Augustines and Alvin Curlings and Denim Jolly and all these people in the 60s and 70s that came. But there's a gap in the 80s and the 90s of people my generation, right, that have done a lot of things um, in, in Canada and Toronto. And, and nobody's documented that. And then, so then there's now the 2000s where everybody thinks, oh, okay, this is, <laughs> this just happened <laughs> because we're so great. No, this happened because there were people like myself that opened the doors for you to be, you know, you know, reporting or, or producing or writing at, you know, a, a major station, right? So I ended up doing a pitch, a uh, tip for the documentary. And uh, it was an interesting experience, again, out of my comfort zone, because I'm now in front of a room full of people pitching my, my idea, which was very nerve-wracking, right? Because you're putting it out there. But I go for things. So I had to figure out how I was going to make this pitch different from everybody else's pitch. So I started off my pitch rapping. I'm not a rapper. <laughs> I started off rapping and I did the opening lines to let your backbone slide. This is a throwdown, a showdown. Hell no, I can't slow down. It's gonna go. First offense. All of the mix. Whoa, what is what's happening? What is she doing? And I did that and I and I pushed the dot. I came second. And I now have a lot of interest in making this documentary. It's gonna get made. I always end my show with my three takeaways. The first one, you know, you, you called yourself a hustler, but what you really meant is I'm a networker and a lesson in life for everybody. And even when you're going to win business woman of the year, you say, well, I'm not going to win, but at least I'll meet some people. You've never stopped networking. And that's such extraordinary advice for people, especially nowadays where it's so easy to link in and connect and to stay in touch. The second one I love is bet on me. And the interesting thing about you when you said bet on me, because I know what I can do, but even still, it wasn't about you or your ego or shining a light on it. It's bet on me because I am very good at helping other people get the attention they deserve. And I love the fact that you always have this sense of humility and grace to say that is my destiny and how you now want to develop documentaries to champion some of the trailblazers in the black community that haven't got the attention they deserve. And the third one is in pressure cooker, because I think more than ever, we're living in this pressure cooker. And the advice I got from you there is this sense of not just being calm under fire, but the empathy you have to just stop and think about everybody's point of view, even somebody uttering profanities or, or having horrible black humor because that's how they're coping with the things they're seeing. I think that empathy really shines through. So you truly are the one and only Fenella Bruce, and I'm really happy you joined me on Chatter That Matters. Thank you, Tony. I am over the moon about this interview. It's been actually therapeutic. It is important to 
to treat people with kindness and you get much 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 better results when you do that I, I hope that one of the documentaries you do is on you <laughs> I doubt it Joining me on Chatter That Matters is Alan Richardson. He's the Senior Vice President of Talent Strategy and Solutions at RBC. I want to talk to you about Fenella Bruce. She's an incredible lady who found herself in almost a minority of one through most of her career. She was the only woman of color and very often the only woman that had a seat at the table. And she said, despite those challenges of trying to navigate vernacular and different ways, she found a way to earn a place there, but she had to fight her way there. What advice can you give from your level of expertise on how to make sure that everybody has a seat at the table and everybody's invited to contribute, regardless of gender, ethnicity, age, or whatever you feel is an advantage or disadvantage? There's two parts to that. Both come down to bias, but in different ways. The first is that I had a, had a recent chat at RBC with Selma Blair, who was just fabulous. We talked about how people with disabilities have these unbelievable troves of creativity because that's how they have to get through life, right? Whether you're in a wheelchair or you have an invisible disability on the spectrum or some autism spectrum or something like that, you, you have built this skill at being creative about how you navigate your life and you can bring that creativity and incredible courage and degree of effort you can give uh, to the working world and, and you can offer so much. So I think the first tackle of bias is to you know, no matter who you're looking at, no matter where they come from or what their challenges or not might be, have the idea that they are able to do limitless things and challenge your own bias about putting a label, you know, reading a book by its cover before you really understand who the person is and what they bring to the table and recognize that groups who have been disenfranchised, who have been faced with challenge their whole life may have a lot more to give. The second is then the microaggressions, the micro sort of unconscious biases in the room. And how do you go into meetings or interviews or discussions and really try and challenge yourself and the team around you to think about the different ways people are interacting and how we really create an inclusive experience? I have to believe that we really need to invest in leadership because a lot of the people that got us to where we are probably haven't got that same level of open-mindedness saying, well, if that person's not exactly like me, how can they be as capable as me? I don't know if it's training in the sort of formal sense of a classroom. I think for senior leadership, it often is about a coach. Um, because again, it goes back to you often need someone who can challenge that senior leader's assumptions and or biases and or worldview and try and broaden it and try and try and help them move beyond those things right you know we understand in, in sports that coaches are critical for someone to reach the top of their game why doesn't every executive have a coach and i'm not saying we do at rbc but it's something that we have to think about right because i think that's what top level performers need is a coach to help them get better and to your point this is one of the ways they need to get better i think the second thing is exemplars you have lots of senior leaders, whether through personal uh, sort of experience or just through open-mindedness, show the way and light the way for others. And you've got you to gotta hold those people up and tell their stories as, as broadly as you can. Thank you for joining me on Chatter That Matters. And Alan, one day I'm going to do a show just with you as the guest because you have so much to offer. Thanks for having me, Tony. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.